Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. I want to welcome you to the Executive Summary and Overview of the State of Information Security 2008 Survey. This project represents about a year's worth of organization and planning on our part. We started by looking at the, the topics that we knew were top of mind with our audience. We looked at regulations coming down from federal agencies, brought together industry thought leaders, and our own board of advisors made up of executives from banks and credit unions throughout the U.S. And we asked them, what are the hot topics? What are the key questions that financial service executives should be asking? That's what made up our survey. The results of this survey will speak for themselves, and I think they'll spark this year's planning for financial service executives, because I feel that we really have got our finger on the pulse of the hot topics here. Today's session, I'll caution, is just an overview. We couldn't fit every question, every answer we received. This is just an executive summary. There's a full report soon to come. I'd like to say also that this survey represents for us just the beginning. Just as the state of information security is something we want to revisit every year to check the progress, to check how the discussion points change, we also want to take deeper dives into other topics of great interest to you. So we urge you to let us know what's on your mind, what do you want to know more about, so we can dive in and research these topics and report back to you. Okay, let me tell you a little bit about our presentation today. I'm going to start out giving you a little bit more information about Information Security Media Group. Then I want to tell you about how we came to develop the State of Information Security Survey for 2008. We'll talk about the main theme that emerged from the responses that we received and analyzing those responses, the key takeaways, as well as the key stories that seem to be developing for the course of the year. I also want to tell you about some subtopics of interest. Then I want to have a discussion about what does all of this mean when you look at the responses and think about the agenda for the year ahead, what do these responses mean? Finally, I want to tell you about the State of Information Security 2008 platform, what our respondents say they have to do to be successful in 2008. And I'll also tell you about the next steps that we're going to take to keep you apprised of their progress. A little bit about BankInfoSecurity.com. We started up just over a year ago. Since that time, we've added CUInfoSecurity.com, and today we have over 57,000 users. Register with us and regularly check in for articles, podcasts, webinars, and other interactive content. You can see from the slide on your screen that our membership in banking institutions is very represented at the senior-most levels of those institutions. I'll also tell you that statistics show that even though we're a U.S.-based company focusing on U.S.-based institutions, we have traffic from over 170 countries. Over 14,000 users have attended our webinars, representing institutions in all 50 states, and we have many regulatory agency representatives that regularly visit BankInfoSecurity.com. Clearly, we also have information security officers from organizations outside banking that are turning to us for insight. If you look at the graphic in front of you, you'll see that of all the banks and credit unions in the United States, BankInfoSecurity.com and CUInfoSecurity.com have got great numbers of these institutions represented within our audience. Let me tell you a little bit about our survey methodology. We administered this survey electronically in December of 2007, and then we followed up the quantitative data with qualitative interviews with respondents in January of this year. We had nearly 300 total respondents, and you can see from the screen, we had 204 banks, 68 credit unions, and when you look at the asset size of the institutions that responded, we have nearly 50 that were of the largest institutions, $2 billion in assets and above. 
We had 165 of the smaller institutions, 500 million or less, and nearly 75 smack in the middle, between 500 million and $2 billion in assets. Now, there were 10 key areas that we wanted to focus on in this survey. Among those areas, roles and responsibilities to determine who within an institution was responsible for information security, what are their reporting relationships, how well were they funded. We wanted to look at incident response, not just in terms of how you respond to incidents at your own institution, but what happens when they occur at third-party service providers. How are incident response plans documented and communicated and updated? Do they involve legal and PR, customer communications? In looking at business continuity and disaster recovery, we also wanted to check to see how those plans are documented, communicated, updated, and we also wanted to look to see if they involved man-made and natural disasters, as well as pandemic disasters, which are getting a lot of attention today. We wanted to evaluate vendor management to see if institutions are evaluating their vendors, looking to see if their security processes and programs are as strong and as airtight as the institution's own programs are supposed to be. We wanted to look at security awareness. How are security programs being communicated to staff, to rank and file employees, and most importantly, to customers? Because we hit the last point, which I've underscored in bold with an exclamation point, customer confidence. We know that more than almost any other industry, banking requires the trust and confidence of customers to be successful. It starts on the very basic level of customers trusting that their financial assets will be secure and then evolves to ensuring that their information assets will be secure. Without this confidence, the banking institutions cannot succeed, so we wanted to gauge how strong is that confidence and where does it need to be strengthened. We had 10 main objectives in doing this project from the start. Number one, we wanted to fill a void. There was no independent analysis of security at financial institutions. We wanted to provide that. In doing so, we wanted to take the pulse of our community to determine what are the key business drivers and how are those manifesting themselves in institutions today. We wanted to study the differences between large and small institutions as well as credit unions and banks. Primarily, we wanted to test the trust. There are three key areas of trust that banking institutions require. That between the institution and the customers, between the institution and the vendors, between the institution and the employees. We wanted to look at where was this trust strong, where did it need to be strengthened. We also wanted to analyze the dependencies. We all know that security programs require people, processes, and technologies work well together to be integrated. Where are these dependencies strong? And again, where do they need to be strengthened in the coming year? We also want to look at the practices, specifically vendor management, to see how institutions are, if they are, holding their third-party service providers to the same high standards that they should be holding themselves. We wanted to gauge preparedness, to look at incident response plans, and see whether they account for incidents not just at the institutions, but at their vendors. And do these plans involve the customer communications, PR, and legal teams as necessary. We wanted to focus on security awareness to look at training and education practices with staff, with employees, with customers and ensure that they're strategic, not just tactical. We wanted to measure the gaps looking at priorities, resources, and practices. We acknowledge up front that nobody is ever going to have all the resources they need to address their priorities, but given available resources, how are these priorities set? What practices are in place to ensure their success? 
Finally, we wanted to create the benchmark. I've spoken about how we at Information Security Media Group want the State of Information Security Survey to be something that we revisit annually so that we can benchmark and we can keep our finger on the pulse. But we also want to do this for financial service executives so you can benchmark with your peers. You can see how you are doing on an annual basis, where you're ahead, maybe where you need to catch up. An important note for your consideration. What we're talking about today are perceptions about the state of information security in financial institutions. We asked our respondents how they felt about vendor management, about customer awareness, about incident response. And so you have to bear in mind that perception can be different from reality. Is reality as rosy as what the respondents say? Is it better? Is it worse? We don't know that. We're not here to say that. What we're here to say is this is their perceptions. This is the state of information security, 2008. That said, let's move on and look at some of the results. Have we built up the tension enough? You ready to proceed? Let me tell you about the main theme that emerged from our responses. I call it a contradiction in confidence. On one hand, institutions are telling us that they grade their ability to counter threats as very good or excellent, as you can see from the graphic on your screen. At the same time, they're telling us that their customers, they believe their customers, share the confidence that the institution's security measures are adequately protecting critical information. They feel very good about that. That's good news then. The institutions are confident, they feel their customers are confident. But on the other hand, just over a fifth of our respondents say that they've either suffered a security breach during the past two years, or they don't know if they have. At the same time, 42% have either been a victim of a phishing attack during the past year, or again, they don't know whether they've been a victim. These are the types of things that can undermine that confidence that we discussed. At the same time, 61% of respondents don't test their incident response plans annually. In fact, you look at how often they do, and most often it's no set schedule at all. A couple of other points to consider. When asked about vendor management, two-thirds of our respondents say that they outsource internet banking systems, yet they have only moderate confidence in their vendor security controls. Nearly one-quarter of the respondents don't even know whether these vendors have suffered a security breach during the past two years. In terms of customer communications, only one quarter say that they've communicated their information security strategies well to their customers, and nearly three quarters assess themselves as average to failing. Now these are two key areas, vendor management and customer communications, that as much as anything can chip away at that confidence that we've discussed. Okay, so here's the real key takeaway that we get from our responses. It's all about trust. We talked about the trust that financial institutions need to succeed. And we're going to talk here about what we hear from our respondents are the factors that can erode that trust. We look at the key drivers, compliance, confidence, and due diligence. Every institution needs to be compliant with regulatory issues. They need that confidence of their employees and their customers alike so they can succeed. And they need to do their due diligence, not just to ensure that contracts with vendors are secure, not to just ensure that terms of service level agreements are met, but what about the standards of information security? They must be checked up on and ensured just as diligently. Now we here we know that security is a business issue. That comes out clear when we look at the priorities, the reporting relationships. But is security funded like a business issue? Or is it funded like a technology project? This trust has to be tested. 
We defined the three areas among customers and banking institutions, the institutions and vendors, the institutions and employees. All of these areas have to be strong, all have to be tested to ensure that they remain strong because anyone can erode that trust. Perception versus reality. This came up before in terms of the responses that we received. We'll look at a couple of other areas that we deal with in the survey. Incident response and business continuity. What respondents are showing us is they feel they have the technical capabilities in place and they're updating these. But are they prepared from a business standpoint? Think about TJX. That wasn't an incident that happened necessarily at TJX. It involved a trusted third-party service provider. Do these incident response and business continuity plans account for what could happen at a vendor? And do they involve PR, legal, and customer communications, all areas that need to come into play if there is a significant incident? And you have to ask the question, do we perceive that these are strong or are they in reality strong? More about trust and the factors that can erode it. External attacks. Incidents aren't all happening within an institution's bounds. We're seeing a rise in phishing incidents. In these cases, education is the best defense and it's the only way to continue to nurture this trust that's so necessary. In terms of employee awareness training, what respondents are telling us is that their programs lack effectiveness monitoring. They're less strategic than tactical. The same is true with customer education. What we're being told is it's plain insufficient, average to failing at best, which comes to awareness training, both for customers, for employees, for staff. It needs to be strategic and not tactical. But what we're hearing consistently is that it's very much driven by what needs to be done on a regulatory exam. So to the letter, it could be compliant, and it may satisfy the compliance, but does it satisfy the need? What respondents are telling us is that it does not. And this is one of those key areas, one of the top, that can undermine the trust that we've established is so necessary. Let's talk about key stories that have emerged from the survey responses. Number one, security is a business issue. Respondents know their priorities, and if you look at the graphic on your screen, you can see that compliance and customer data protection topped their list of priorities for 2008. This is good. What we do find, though, is that the title of the person performing the information security role is a little hard to pin down. More than half of our respondents, when given a laundry list of titles they can choose from, chose other. Now what this tells us is that in many institutions, particularly the smaller ones, information security might not be a defined full-time role. Instead, what it might be is a part-time job that's tacked onto someone else's full-time job so that perhaps information security isn't being given the full-time executive resource that it might require. Good news, we find that more than 40% of our respondents are reporting to the CEO president or to the board of directors and audit committee. This is good. It shows executive sponsorship. It shows that the key relationships are in place to ensure that security remains a business issue, that it's high on the business agenda. But we also find that only one-fifth of respondents have got their own defined security budgets. Over half, 54%, are getting their funding through IT. So there's an interesting contradiction here as well. The priorities are business priorities. The reporting relationships are business relationships. But we're finding that there isn't always a full-time executive in charge of information security at these institutions. And often, they don't have their own budgets. They're getting it through IT. So it gets back to the issue. Security is a business issue, 
Is it being funded and sourced like one? That's a good question. It becomes one of our key stories this year. Another key story that emerges is fishing. The reality that no institution is safe. More than one-third of our respondents say that they've been a victim of a phishing attack over the past two years. Seven percent don't even know. Yet we do know that the crime is growing. Attacks are easy to launch. Payback from them is high. And even though institutions don't always know when they're a victim of a phishing attack, they do know that they can and must do a better job educating customers about how to avoid them. The risk is if they don't, then that trust that we talk about can be further eroded. Vendor management is one of the big stories that emerge from our results. The main theme here is too much trust, too little testing. What we find is that in outsourcing relationships today, customers are very wise to being able to manage their contracts, to be able to manage the service level agreements. But are they being just as wise about managing security? Now what we find, look at the chart on your screen, more than two-thirds of our respondents, 67%, are outsourcing a key service such as internet banking. And you can see we give a laundry list of, of possibilities that they could be outsourcing. Here's what they told us. But of those who are outsourcing such a key service, only 41% have got moderate confidence in vendor security. And we're talking about information security, and we're talking about confidence and trust. Is moderate confidence good enough? Training. One of the other key stories that emerged. Employees and customers, by our respondents' own admission, are being shortchanged. Now, we all understand that employees and customers have to understand their institution's security measures, and they certainly need to know their own roles in supporting them. Yet that said, of our respondents, 62% grade themselves average to poor in educating their employees. You can see that from the chart on your screen. At the same time, 73% graded themselves average to poor at educating employees. Now you can look at this chart and you can say, okay, 61% say average, 26% said very good, 1% excellent, that's not bad, it skews up. But look at the 60% square in the middle and ask yourself again, is average good enough when it comes to information security? We have a number of subtopics that are of interest. Incident response is number one. When we asked if incident response plans account for incidents at vendors, 24% say no or they don't know. Again, comes back to the issue of vendor management. In terms of communications, only two-thirds say that customer communications is built into these plans. And again, if TJX has taught us nothing in the past year, it's how critical teams like legal, PR, and customer communications are to true incident response. Worse, 30% of respondents say they either don't have an incident response plan in place or they haven't updated it in the past year. Now, incident response isn't one of those good to have. It's something that organizations have to have. And yet what we're finding is that in too many cases, they're not in place or have not been updated. Security breaches. We're talking about identity theft mainly here. 15% of respondents say that they know that they've been victimized in the past two years. See that on the screen. Key point. They say they know they've been victimized. Okay. This brings to mind famous words that came from a bank examination. We won't give out any names here. But when asked about incidents, the response was, we're not aware of any undetected intrusions. Now think about that for a minute. We're not aware of any undetected intrusions. The point here is, it isn't about what you know. It's about what you don't know. 
in terms of security breaches that really can be most dangerous. Business continuity, another key subtopic. Institutions tell us they aren't doing a great job communicating these plans to their employees. As you see on the screen, 50% say they either haven't done so or only somewhat. In terms of preparation for disasters, you look at natural disasters, man-made, and pandemic, and what we find is that respondents say they're least prepared for pandemics, and that's the one area where regulators are now pushing for them to improve. Key comparisons by asset. Again, we looked at small, mid-sized, and large institutions and tried to see where the key commonalities were and the differences. Now, no surprise here, I'm going to generalize a bit. But for the most part, it came down that the larger institutions with the greater resources certainly were further along in some of the areas of compliance and protection, and you would expect that. That said, even with that, that point made, if you look at the differences between smaller and larger, we found that only 74% of smaller institutions have got a formal information security strategy in place versus 87% of institutions overall. In terms of incident response plan updates, Fewer smaller institutions have updated their plans in the past year compared to other institutions. And look at the mid-sized institutions are doing best of all. Identity theft prevention. We asked institutions to take a look at a laundry list of potential strategies that they might have adopted to fight identity theft, from network-based intrusion systems, employee background checks, firewalls, network access controls. And when you look across the board, the smaller institutions are saying that they're doing significantly less than the larger ones in terms of fighting identity theft. And yet, as we know, identity theft is asset agnostic. It doesn't care what size institution you are, the criminals are going to come after you. In terms of vendor management, we asked about how institutions are ensuring vendor security practices. We gave a small list of potential programs they could be implementing, starting with SAS 70s. And what we found is SAS 70 reviews are the most popular, probably the, the crux of a vendor management program. But when you look across the board, the smaller institutions all say that they're doing significantly less than the larger ones in ensuring vendor security. We also took a look at the differences between banks and credit unions. Honestly, there weren't a lot of differences. The differences mainly were in terms of asset size, as we discussed before. But there were just a couple of things that jumped out when you looked at the two different types of institutions. Reporting relationships, for one. Credit union security leaders are just more likely to report to the CEO and president than those at banks. In terms of incident response plans, credit unions are less likely to have updated their plans in the past year, and they're more likely to just be developing that plan now, and less likely to account for vendor security or customer communications in those plans. So you can see that from what our respondents are saying, at credit unions, they've got some catching up to do in terms of incident response plans. Okay, so really, what does all this mean? I sort of put on my Richard Dawson survey says voice here and, and take a look. Let's go back and look at the things that we wanted to know from our respondents versus what they told us. Priorities and roles. It's, it's clear that senior management understands the role that information security plays in this customer confidence and trust that we've identified is so key. But a lack of dedicated resources, whether that be personnel assigned full-time and executive management, or just the control of the budget and where the budget's coming from. That lack of dedication could hamper the progress being made here. Customer confidence and trust. We know that customers of all financial institutions, regardless of size, are targets of fraudulent activities. Identity theft, phishing, they're asset agnostic. They don't care the size of an organization. 
what the financial institutions need to do now, and they're telling us this, is they need to take an active role in improving customer education, which really is the best defense. Vendor management. We know that it's a way of life for institutions to be relying on third-party service providers. But what we find from their responses is there's a lack of understanding on the level of security controls that's being maintained by these vendors. Again, there's more interest being put into customer references up front, the terms of a contract, service level agreements, and certainly SAS 70s, but not to security controls. What are they now? What should they be? And how do they progress over time? In terms of business continuity planning, what we're finding is that institutions say that they need to account for the newer threats. Pandemic preparedness would be one of them. And the plans currently lack communications to all necessary stakeholders. The PR, the legal teams need to be involved, customer communications, those aren't in a lot of these plans now. Regulatory compliance, it remains the top priority of institutions and we understand that. But assessing their vendors' compliance with banking regulations, that's an area that needs improvement. Again, it gets back to the notion that there's been a lot of trust there, but not very much testing. Program management, and here we lump in risk assessment and incident response. What we find is that risk assessments tend to be conducted frequently, mostly annually, but that incident response plans lack the legal and PR activities that are necessary, as well as customer communications. At the same time, these plans tend to lack for accounting for incidents at trusted third-party service providers. Now, as we found, big-name cases of the past year, incidents don't always happen within institutions. Sometimes it's at partners, and yet these incidents can be just as damaging to the institutions and to their customers. In terms of identity theft, perception and reality again. Financial institutions believe that they have adequate controls. They tell us that they're investing in technologies such as encryption, log management. They feel confident, but the awareness in the training puts this confidence to the test. We're clearly, in terms of educating staff, employees, customers, current practices are checklist driven. They're because they're part of a program that's been mandated and they're checked off when they're done. They may be compliant to the letter of the law, but are they effective? Are they strategic? Clearly, responses are telling us, no, they are not. Okay, so bearing in mind, this issue of trust that we've talked about from the start, the necessity that we have to have trust with customers, with vendors, and with employees, bearing in mind the disconnect between perception of confidence and the reality of what our respondents have said to us, and again, underscoring all of this, it's just a matter of perception. Bearing all that in mind, here is what our responders are saying is their platform for the state of information security in 2008. If they were running for office, this is what they would say. Security strategies have to be documented and shared. Business continuity plans must account for newer threats. They must be tested, communicated, and updated. Incident response plans must account for business issues, including incidents at third-party service providers. Vendor management needs improvement, ensuring that partner security and compliance measures is just as airtight as their own institutions should be. Again, think about TJX. Finally, customer awareness needs improvement. The new efforts must focus internally and externally to deal with events that happen outside institutions like phishing. So, next steps. What you've heard today is just an overview of the survey results. Coming very soon is a PDF executive summary of this report, soon to be followed by a full report that details every question and answer we received, 
also includes the qualitative responses that we got from interviews with respondents to the survey. There's a special webinar being held exclusively for the respondents that will include not just release of the overview, but a roundtable discussion with thought leaders on what all this means, how they will act further based upon what they've heard. Very soon the results will be released to the public, as well as the report, the executive summary. And over the course of 2008, we're going to track the issues that we've talked about today. Vendor management, customer awareness, incident response. We're going to check these over the year to benchmark progress on these issues. And of course, we've already started thinking about the state of information security in 2009. We're working on that survey now. We look forward to administering it at the end of the year and being back here at this time next year to tell you what we've found. Now, what I really want to do now is I want to invite my panelists to unmute their phones so we can have a little bit of a discussion about this. I've invited representatives from, from the key areas in this constituency just to talk about what we have today. Now, let me introduce our speakers. Megan and Stephen and Jeffrey, if you can come off mute now, we'll have a good discussion about this. The first person I want to introduce is Megan Detzel. She's a regional manager with Icons Inc., which is a security solutions provider. Now, Megan is responsible for information security, professional services, sales, and delivery. She brings a diverse background in privacy, information security, internal audit, fraud investigation, vendor management, product project management, all from the banking industry. Before joining ICONS, she was responsible for information security and GLBA strategy planning and day-to-day -day operations for one of the three largest mutual banks in New England, as well as the entity-wide vendor management program and insurance portfolio. Megan, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Tom. How are you doing? Very well, thank you. I also want to introduce Jeffrey Kopchick who's a senior policy analyst with the FDIC's technology supervision branch. Now, Jeffrey was the team leader of the FDIC's 2004 study, putting an end to account hijacking identity theft. He was the FDIC's primary representative on the FFIEC staff working group that drafted the 2005 guidance on authentication in an Internet banking environment. And he was also involved in interagency rulemaking efforts with the Fair and Accurate Credit Transactions Act and was all involved in the creation and implementation of the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, Interagency Information Security Guidelines, Supervisory Guidance on Customer Notice, FFIEC Business Continuity Planning Booklet, and FDIC Guidance on Wireless Networks. He's been a great source and resource for us, and Jeffrey, I'm very glad you could make it to join us today. Thanks, Tom. Finally, I want to introduce Stephen Jones who is the Vice President and Director of Information Security with Synovus Financial. Now, Stephen holds responsibility for the company's organizational policy, risk management, security awareness, identity management, disaster recovery, and other areas of risk management. As a member of senior management, he aids in technology planning, regulatory compliance, business solution delivery, policy, and strategy. And I'll tell you that Stephen joined Synovus Financial in 1995 became Vice President, Director of Network Research and Development in 1999, and ultimately he became what he is today, Vice President and Director of Information Security. Stephen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, Stephen, just as a uh, as sort of a, a benchmark for our group, can you give us a, a sense of how many institutions Synovus actually is involved with? Well, Synovus Financial is about a $32 billion company, and we have 
Um, as a holding company, we have 37 separate affiliate banks. And it's unique in the aspect that it's a decentralized, uh, takes a decentralized approach to banking uh, as a very large ho uh, multi-bank holding company. Each of our banks is separately chartered with a separate CEO and a separate uh, board of director. So it creates uh, some unique challenges for us. And, um, and you know, we have state chartered banks and national chartered banks. Uh, so we have a variety of um, regulatory uh, interagencies that we work with. Excellent. Well, glad you could uh, you could join us today, folks. I want to I want to throw out a question. Have each of you talk with us? And, and Megan, I'd like to hear from you first. Within the context of your current role, what's your gut reaction to the results we just heard? What's all this mean to you? What do you think about it? Um, I think that institutions are overly confident. I feel like um, they're rating their confidence level high, but haven't supported it with formalized programs. Or better yet, we're seeing an influx in the number of DORs and board resolutions out there. And these companies and these institutions are still coming back and saying that they feel like their information security standards are strong and our regulators are not supporting that. Interesting. Jeff, let me ask you the same thing. Got reaction to the results that we just heard? Well, I think I would say, Tom, that on one hand, I was not completely surprised by anything that I saw and heard from the study. Um, but I do think certainly that there are uh, some particular things that jumped out at me um, as areas of concern as a regulator. And two that, that come to mind would be sort of this, this lack of vendor oversight and this um, uh, lack of attention to information security. And I think um, the reason it concerns me as a regulator is because, one, these are regulatory requirements that have been around for a while. And the regulators have devoted a lot of time and ink this subject, so I guess I would have hoped in that hand that uh, the results had been a little more positive uh, on those two things. Sure. Dude, I, I don't mean to put you in the hot seat here, but as the representative of financial institutions right now, uh, having heard what, uh, what Megan and, and, and Jeff have said, what's your gut reaction to the results that you just heard? Well, I think, Tom, one of the things that probably struck me the most was, you know, that we have such common issues across the industry. As I, as I look through and listen through your results uh, kind of the state of information security, uh, it's clear to me that the uh, FDIC and the OCC and the banking interagencies um, have, have, become, have, have been very consistent in their approach across the industry because these are clearly uh, issues that the, regula inter you know, the regulatory agencies as well as the consumers, I think, have brought to the forefront. Uh, as a result of the, you know, the media attention around security breaches, uh, identity theft being as an issue. I mean, you look at the, you know, the recent regu regulations around strong authentication. Uh, of course, in the past, GLBA ID red flag rules. All of these are really, um, you know, focusing on knowing the customer. And I think that's, you know, that's as you mentioned in your overview, you know, the consumer confidence issue and the trust issue around banking and credit unions are so key to the success of that industry. Uh, and I think it's important that we all realize that and, as you said, run it like a business and uh, incorporate a lot of these basic, comp you know, basic principles of information security around confidentiality, integrity, and availability of information. Sure. Now, one thing that came through loud and clear, and Megan, you brought this up when you started speaking, is that the survey respondents say that they and their customers have got confidence in their institution security measure. But the other responses don't real, 
reveal a whole lot of evidence of why they should. So, Megan, let me ask you first, what do you see is behind this disconnect over the confidence over what the respondents say and then what they really tell us? Uh, vendor management is a huge issue. I, I feel like we've put way too much reliance on um, gathering the 70s, and you're going to see a real push this year um, for what are you doing with the 70s? What else have you done to document that? And people have come to feel like they've outsourced a service or a product, and therefore they've washed their hands of it, and, and that's not the case at all. So that's a huge risk for me, um, real big vulnerability in a company, as well as incident response plans. You know, risk assessments are great, and they help you to identify your vulnerabilities, but if you don't have a plan in place to address an incident when it happens, you, you've made yourself so vulnerable for that incident to spiral out of control. And that's a huge problem for me as well. Sure. Jeff, what are your thoughts on confidence? What's behind it? Well, I'm not exactly sure, although I, I tend to agree with the comment that Megan made a few minutes ago, which is I think that when your survey sort of asks the general question about, you know, how are things, you get a bit of a sort of this overconfident, perhaps, response from the industry, oh, we think we're doing really well. And there's some overconfidence there. There's some perhaps some wishful thinking there. But then as my impression was that as the survey starts to drill down into more specific questions, you perhaps get more accurate answers that, that, that start to uh, show you that perhaps things aren't quite as rosy as the initial answer, you know, sort of leads the reader to believe. So um, that's the sense I got from it. Sure, and I got sort of the same thing as that you just, you know, you start to answer these deeper questions and you realize, oh, well, maybe, maybe I do feel differently about that. Stephen, your thought on that, the disconnect over the, the confidence that we saw there, what do you think is behind that? I, I would agree with you know, both what Megan and, and Jeff have said, I would, I would add to that that I think there are a couple of other uh, underlying issues related to that disconnect. I think one is uh, as a function of outsourcing, I think as we outsource more and more of our uh, technology solutions, you know, we become more and more disconnected. Uh, and so I think that that might lend itself to some of the some of the questions around how we, you know, how effective we think we are. But then as we relate that, I think when you early on when you're asking questions about, you know, how a bank or how a credit union is doing, uh, they're probably initially thinking about things like perimeter controls. And usually that's something within their, you know, that, that's, that they can grasp onto and understand and probably have some pretty good metrics around how they're doing. But as you move more and more into the effectiveness, you start getting into human behavior and third-party relationships, and those are a little more... Um, a little less tangible and a little, little more difficult to measure and manage and, and feel confident about. Folks, I want to ask you about vendor management. Jeff, I want to start out with you because I know the FDIC has talked an awful lot about vendor management of late. How did this whole concept evolve so loosely, and how is it going to change? Um, no, I think, Tom, that, that there's sort of a, there's a contradiction here, and, and basically it is that you know, institutions generally outsource something um, because they don't want to have to worry about it. They, they want some other institution or some other organization to take care of it. Um, but the flip side of that is that the regulators made it clear that while an institution, financial institution, can outsource um, a function, 
that they can outsource the responsibility, that they still have the responsibility to, to watch what the vendor is doing and make sure that the vendor is basically has in place all the controls and, and things that the institution would have to have in place if it was doing the function directly. Um, and I think that, that oversight of vendors is particularly hard for small banks. Um, and we hear this all the time at the FDIC because we supervise a lot of small banks, that small community banks do not have a lot of leverage over vendors, especially the big service providers. Um, so they find it very difficult to really sort of get those vendors to do what they want or to give them the information um, that they need to try to keep track of what's happening. Now, Stephen, you've got, um, you, as you say, you've got 34 chartered institutions within Synovus. How has vendor management evolved within your organizations, and, and what do you think is going to have to change? Well, fortunately for us, we we are able to centralize a lot of that, so that, that helps us in terms of okay. you know, managing or leveraging those relationships that Jeff mentioned, and I think that's an important aspect. Okay. But I think to, to sort of add to that, you know, as far as, one of the ways that we've been able to manage through vendor management, it's been important for us to put in some sort of tiering process so that we can differentiate, you know, one vendor third-party relationship from another. And that allows us to determine how much effort or how much due diligence we should put into a particular uh, engagement. The other thing that uh, I see coming in, in the banking industry is because of these requirements, I think we're starting to see some cooperation among the financial institutions around sharing assessments. And, you know, you mentioned the reliance on SAS 70s and things like that. And if you look at what Notch is doing and what Visa is doing and what the FFIEC is doing, they're all looking for a better way to sort of assess third parties and how they're managing information and the effectiveness of that. And I think there are some capabilities there that we could leverage between those um, between what each of the banks are doing as well as between what the uh, regulatory agencies and the third party and the merchant and the visas and, and so forth are doing. So I think there's opportunity there to leverage a shared, a shared assessment as well. Great. Now, Megan, I know that in your past life, vendor management was a big part of your, your job. What are your thoughts on this? What's going to have to happen to change with vendor management across institutions? Management has to be held accountable. Vendor management is not one person's responsibility, just like information security is not one person's responsibility. Um, board needs to understand their role in reviewing critical vendors and high-risk vendors, and management needs to better understand their responsibility for reporting those relationships and the risks that exist within them. Due diligence needs to be enhanced. Like, again, I'm going to go back to the SAS 70 thing. Five years ago, if you got a SAS 70 and had that on trial, that was enough to appease the regulators. That is not the case anymore. Um, we want to see you doing more due diligence, on-site audits, reviews of information security programs, contract language that is specific to proper disposal and incident reporting, things of that nature um, need to be enhanced significantly especially with existing relationships. Our companies are getting better at the due diligence for new vendors, but, but what about old vendors? Vendors that you've been doing business with for 10 years, those seem to be slipping through the cracks. Yeah, well said. Friends, I want to ask you about customer education. We all see the need, and then we see the results that we get from the survey. 
Stephen, I want to start with you because I know it's been a big part of what you've done with your institutions. What's it going to take to improve security awareness overall, especially with customer education? Well, that's a big question, and there, there are probably a thousand answers to that, but I guess the one thing I would focus on that we hadn't talked too much about, you know, is, is risk assessment. And we, that's a, you know, understanding the information architecture and the risk, assessing the risk within our banking organization has been fundamental to our information security program. And the big reason for that is we see such an incredible value in, um, in the customer education because we're, we're educating the frontline folks as part of that process. So by connecting with the business and connecting with uh, the folks that are connecting with their customers, uh, that's one way that we, that we um, have, have seen tremendous benefit in, in customer education. The other thing is we do um, some community type education. And, and this, is sort of, this sort of builds off what our you know, working with each of the banks and we found a lot of success, and some of that has come out of things like what you'll talk about in a minute, phishing incidents and things like that. So those things, you know, those types of customer, uh, you know, issues and customer questions have directly impacted the, you know, the energy and the enthusiasm around customer, customer confidence and customer awareness. And, you know, to notice we see this as a, as a key differentiator, and it's really a strong part of our culture. In other words, knowing the customer is, is such a strong part of our culture that, that we found that this, you know, this concept fits in very nicely with that. Now, how do you uh, sort of manage the, the customer education efforts for all 34 of those different institutions? Well, we have a network of um, individuals that have responsibility for security at each of the banks, and they're not dedicated. Uh, and then each of the banks are different sizes, so they have different levels of dedication to that, but we provide a lot of that material and we'll provide on-site, uh, you know, community awareness campaigns or on-site um, material and so forth. So we, we facilitate that whenever we whenever they need that, and then a lot of times they'll just initiate that on their own. Now, Jeff, you see an awful lot of institutions through your role at the FDIC. What do you see that it's going to take to improve the security awareness overall with the institutions? Um, well, actually, Tom, I, I would say from my perspective that, that I think banks have been doing a, a much better job at customer education in the past couple of years. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that banks, of course, realize that in most of these cases, they take the financial hit when something goes wrong. Um, so to the extent that they can educate their customers to avoid phishing uh, incidents or things like that, um, it's, it's a benefit to the bank's bottom line to have a, a more educated um, customer that's going to that's gonna participate in sort of protecting their account. Um, I think the other part of it I would say is a partnership. I think in the past couple of years you've also seen um, federal government agencies um, try to basically do a lot more in terms of consumer education. The FDIC has done a number of things over the past couple of years where we've put out um, information and education efforts directly to consumers. We've also given stuff to the banks that they can then use with customers. And you have other agencies outside the banking industry, like the Federal Trade Commission, that does a, really a fantastic amount of consumer education, uh, both on their website and in, in symposiums that they run around the country. And they actually reach a, a fair number of customers and keep talking to them about things about how to avoid identity theft and stuff like that. Jeff, do you know how happy you've just made a bunch of institutions by telling them they're doing a pretty good job? I do my best. 
Megan, I want to ask you the same thing. You've been in the trenches. You see a lot of institutions now. Customer education. What do you think it's going to take to improve security awareness overall? You know, it's a really hard question to answer because it depends on the level that institutions are interacting with their customers, especially with all this online-based stuff now where you can do loan applications and open accounts and um, the, the use of cell phones now to do banking. It's going to make customer education um, a real challenge because you're not having that one-on-one -on -one contact with them. Um, statement stuffers, I don't know about you guys, but when I get a statement from the bank, and I worked at the bank, I ripped it up, shredded it, and tucked it before I even opened it. Sure. So, you know, how effective are those? I don't know. I think you're going to reach more customers on the Internet. People, even even um, of all ages, are tending to use Internet resources more readily. So, you know, I guess it's going to take a little bit more market research to probably answer that question in an educated fashion. At this point, it would just be a guess. You make a good point, though, Maggie. You talked about mobile banking. You know, just today I had two conversations with, with security leaders at financial institutions, and, and they both said that that's what they're exploring now because that's what their younger customer base especially wants them to get into. So this customer awareness issue is only going to intensify. Now, I wanted to uh, let listeners know that you can still take the opportunity to submit some questions via the chat window. We've got, uh, we've got some more time here with our panel, so we've got good questions coming in, and don't hesitate to keep them coming our way. got a question about incident response. Jeff, I'm going to start with you on this. There's a glaring lack of accountability that we've uncovered for incidents that occur within vendors, and there's a noted lack of involvement with PR, legal, customer communications, all the things we talked about. Realistically, in terms of incident response, where can we expect to see change first? Well, Tom, you know, I would say, I mean, this this is something that I think is of, of significant concern to the regulators, and, and it's uh, really, it, it's of significant concern because if you go back, I mean, since 2001 and the Glibit Information Security Guidelines, um, institutions have been required to have an incident response program. In 2005, the regulators came out with guidance that made it clear to institutions that as part of that incident response program, you had to notify customers in certain circumstances when their, um, you know, personally identifiable information was compromised. And then, of course, you have a series of state laws that started with California that mandated that, that institutions notify customers when there's a problem. So this is not a new concept from a regulatory point of view, and, and it's, it's of concern to me that it just, it, we still see it based on your survey and we still see it based on, I think, the result of exams that um, banks are, are probably not doing quite the kind of job that they should. Um, I do know that it is something that examiners um, will bring up. They talk to bankers about it, and depending on the, uh, the severity of the problems, it, it's something that can rise to the level of a comment that can be made in the report of examination and ultimately something that can uh, actually affect the exam rating itself in conjunction with other things. Good point. You just, in fact, you just answered a question that came through from one of the uh, from one of the listeners. Stephen, your thoughts on that incident response? Where can we expect to see some of the first changes? I mean, Jeff's comments are absolutely true. You know, we've we've in incorporated all of those aspects into our incident response process and and regularly updated. So, you know, I find it difficult to understand how an effect how effective an incident response could be without engaging 
you know, your public relations and legal, and to include that into your non-disclosures, include that, you know, that language, uh, breach language and incident response uh, process into your requirements, into your contracts. Uh, the, those are absolutely necessary, especially as we depend more and more on third parties uh, to handle, you know, customer-sensitive information. So where do I see that going? I, I hope I hope the rest of the, the financial community, you know, continues to improve aspects of instant response because, as you said earlier, it's not a nice-to-have, it's a must-have. Sure. Megan, you're out there in the trenches. You're seeing lots of institutions. Where are you starting to see, if at all, change in terms of incident response? Unfortunately, I'm seeing a lot of updates being made to response programs after something has gone wrong. Um, I see a lot of retroactive work instead of proactive work. Business continuity plans don't necessarily include incident response plans, um, which is a problem. And incident response plans are often tailored only to technology. They're not tailored to breaches of customer information. They're tailored to breaches of systems or securities. Um, so they're not getting the proper oversight that they need from all areas. Regulatory exams, of course, are, are implementing changed programs. Um, those being the biggest drivers behind actual incidences that have happened to an institution. And Megan, you brought up business continuity, so I want to I want to start you with a question about business continuity. Let's talk about this whole notion of pandemic preparedness. What do you think about the state of pandemic preparedness or lack thereof, as we got from our survey results? I think pandemic preparedness was a regulatory issue. People received their FILs. They started to make updates to their business continuity and disaster recovery plans. And feedback I've gotten is that they're sort of getting lost in the process of what is important and what isn't, what needs to be included and what doesn't. I think that it's very hard for us to visualize something of such a large scale. It's much easier to say, okay, if this building burns down tomorrow, what are we going to do? But to question the loss of an entire workforce or a majority of that is, is a whole other scaled process that we have not prepared ourselves for mentally. Jeff, I want to get your thoughts on the FDIC because I know that, that this has certainly been an issue that you folks have been behind. What are your thoughts on this, this pandemic preparedness that we're not seeing in institutions? Well, you know, Tom, I think Megan makes a very good point, and I would agree with her, which is um, I don't work on pandemic planning directly, but I, I work with people who do, and I talk to them about it a bit in preparation for this, uh, this webinar, and I would say two things. One is I think Megan absolutely hit the nail on the head where she said that um, institutions are having a real difficult time getting their hands around this because it is potentially so big and so amorphous um, and we've never really faced anything like it before, that you almost don't know where to start. It's, 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 as she said, it's much easier to figure out what you're going to do, you know, if you have a flood or you have a hurricane, if you have an institution in Florida. But the idea that, you know, 80% of your workforce could be homesick, um, that's, that's a mind-bender. Um, I think the sense that I get from the regulatory agencies is they feel that uh, most banks are probably a bit behind the curve on this, and that's why, if you'll notice, the, the different uh, parts of the federal government have been doing a lot of things. The Treasury, for example, had a big pandemic exercise with the financial institution community this past fall. They just did a pandemic roundtable actually yesterday 
where financial institutions were included. Um, HHS is doing some workshops with state governments. Um, you know, the FFIC issued guidance about this um, last month. Um, you know, there's we're trying to do things. We're trying to get um, institutions to focus on it. I actually know that I think uh, there was some disappointment that more institutions, for example, did not participate in the in the roundtable that was just done. But I do think it's a very difficult thing to get your mind around. Sure. Stephen, from your perspective, um, pandemic preparedness, what are your thoughts on this? What's happened within Synovus, for instance? Well, I mean, clearly this is, uh, you know, the preparedness for a pandemic is, is of huge scale, and I think both of the the, the last two comments attested to that. You know, this, this requires a great deal of cooperation and coordination with Homeland Security, local and federal authorities, uh, and it's much bigger than, you know, as, as Megan said, you know, putting, putting um, you know, a, a, dealing with a single building incident or dealing with, even with a disaster within your own organization. Uh, so, you know, from my perspective, I think preparedness is, you know, this is not something that you can very easily test. You know, you could test, you could, you could take part of your workforce and, and take them out of the picture for a day or so, but to really understand, you know, the, the national or global impact as it relates to, you know, all of the critical infrastructure, you know, around the impact of a pandemic is, is almost impossible to simulate. So that, that therein really lies the challenge in determining, you know, how prepared is, a, is an organization. I would agree with you that probably the smaller organizations, you know, have less resource to dedicate to something like this than the larger. Uh, you know, but clearly if this is something that, that happens, then this is going gonna to have a, you know, incredible impact. Dave, I want to get your thoughts on identity theft and phishing. We've talked about this a lot. In your experience, what works in terms of defending against identity theft and phishing, and what still needs more work? Well, we've had a lot of um, questions around things like phishing and identity theft, particularly with our 37 brands. I mean, that's that's been a um, it's, it's made us a, a significant target for phishing in the past. We've used a couple of there've been a couple of things that have uh, benefited us. One is, of course, as I mentioned before, you know, the, the security awareness both on, at the sales level as well as at the customer level. So that, that's, that's been an, an effective mechanism to further enhance the relationship with our customer, and that fits in well with our, 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 our culture and so forth. The other is, uh, you know, there, there may be smaller banks on the, our credit unions on the phone that may or may not be aware or uh, of services available for things like phishing takedown. So there are services out there that we've leveraged to, to facilitate helping, uh, you know, with a global network in place, with multi multilingual skills to be able to work with local ISPs. They understand the local laws and customs, um, and they understand what it would take, you know, to, to get uh, a, a particular fraudulent website taken down as quickly as possible. And you can imagine, you know, I've talked to larger banks that have tried to take that on themselves, and even they are moving towards some of these, you know, phishing takedown services. Uh, so I would encourage you, you know, if you've had some, some cases like that, to at least maybe look into some of those solutions. I won't recommend any particular solutions, but just to, just to let the folks know that those services are available. Oh, well said. Megan, same question for you. In terms of identity theft and phishing, what works? What still needs more work? What works, what works best is to be quick and 
and, and uh, responsive when you find out you or your customers have been subject to it. Um, unfortunately, there's really no way to prevent phishing at this point. I know the FDIC has done a lot to assist banks. I know when I was at Liberty, we were phished um, a couple of different ways, and each time the FDIC has been m most helpful um, in pointing you in the right direction, offering you the support. There's a team assigned to that, and I think it's very important that even if an institution has not already been phished, to at least get in touch with the FDIC so that they know who to call, when to call, just having that phone number on your call list is going to be a great reassurance for you. Jesse, you're Megan taking care of you there? I appreciate it. <laughs> it's true. You know, I had only been in my position, I don't know, three or four months when we were fished, and it was the first time the bank had been fished. I had barely gotten my incident response plan in writing. I mean, the ink wasn't even dry yet. And uh, I certainly hadn't written any procedures in there for fishing. So having had the FBIC as a resource was great. There's also an FBI task force that's devoted to phishing. You need to get into contact with them. There's different task force depending on where you are, what your location is. Um, you need to identify those in advance as well because you're not going to want to have to waste time hunting down phone numbers and contact information after something's already happened. And then your next most important thing is to make your customers aware. Give them the knowledge that they need. Tell them how to stop this incident. Put up pictures on your internet. If you have been authorized to access your customers through email, send them mass emails. Um, be careful of your spam regulations. But you know, whatever way you can reach out to your customers, the more customers that are aware of what's going on and how to, to recognize this and how to react to it, the more you're going to safeguard them. Okay, folks, we've had an echo on the line, which tells me that someone might have their phone on speaker, but the mute off. And if that's the case, you might put the mute back on. There's an echo coming over. In those cases, we have uh, we have tried to uh, to do it, um, you know, from our own perspective. Um, I I'm going to come at this at a slightly different perspective, which is to raise the subject that is sort of near and dear to my heart, and I've been involved in for years, and that's the subject of authentication. Um, you know, part of my answer to the question is I think that better authentication of customers is one way to deal with phishing. Now, I certainly understand that, that depending on the nature of the attack, um, you know, better, better authentication is not necessarily the end-all and be-all. Um, but if you, if you think about the authentication guidance that um, Stephen referred to earlier on that the agencies put out in 05 that was effective in 07, all the information we've gotten back is that fraud and identity theft on the online banking channel has gone down significantly, and we think it's a result of stronger authentication. And I guess what I'm saying is I would suggest that banks need to think about carrying some of those stronger authentication techniques through to other channels. And to the extent they do that, I think that that can help to mitigate some of these phishing risks. So we have a few minutes left here. I want to get in some of the questions that we're getting from the audience right now. And, and Jeff, here's what I want to direct to you. It's a very basic one about vendor management. I think it's a good question. Does vendor, manage, vendor management apply to service providers such as electricians? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I think the answer is yes. I don't think that we traditionally think of it that way. When, when the agencies think about vendor management and we talk about vendor management, we usually do so in the context of an institution that is outsourcing 
um, online banking, for example, or core processing uh, to one of the well-known or not so well-known companies around the country that do that. Um, but I think that if you read the guidance, you could say that to the extent that the institution contracts with anyone, uh, an electrician who's coming in and installing you know, new Cat5 cable or whatever, that again, you have to sort of pay attention. Just, I'm having my home renovated right now. I mean, I trust the contractor, but on the other hand, when I come home every night, um, I go right to the section that's being renovated and, and look at everything I can look at to make sure that it's being done in a way that I think it's supposed to be. So I think that there's a parallel there. Sure. Steve, i got a question I want to ask of you. Would educating customers cause them to think that the financial institution is experiencing some type of a breach? Now, that's an interesting question. You're educating. Does that mean that behind the scenes something has happened? What do you think? Well, that is an interesting question, you know, and I think it, it gets back to, you know, obviously how you message that to the customer. And, and one of the things that we haven't really touched on is particularly as banks and credit unions extend their services onto the Internet. Uh, that, that puts us, I think one of the things that we've learned over the past few years with, uh, with, with the advent of taking these services onto a public network like the Internet is that I think as we, you know, we've, we've sort of slowly transitioned more and more services um, into with things like uh, check truncation, you know, check, 20, uh, check 21, and online banking and mobile banking. And I think as we do this, you know, we're, you know it's important that the consumer understands that they are accepting, you know, some of the risk of this. In other words, what, what does their personal computing space look like? And, and what measures have they taken to ensure that their personal computing space is secure? And clearly the banks have responsibility for some of that, but I think that needs to be part of that awareness, you know, to the customer of what are things that they can do to protect themselves in their personal space, to include the human behavior and the socialization component as well as the technology piece. Um, sure. So I think, you know, obviously you can create a, uh, a fear, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, or a doom and gloom type environment. Um, but it, I think if it's if it's presented in the right light and it's presented in a way that you know you're reaching out to help them, you know, in, in, improve the security posture of their. It could be e-commerce, it could be e-banking, uh, it could be any type of online activity. You know, I think that that that's a differentiating uh, perspective uh, that's important to that. To that aspect of it. Very good. One last question from the audience. Megan, I'm going to direct this your way. If a bank does not install a vendor risk management program, does this or can this hurt their overall rating? What are your thoughts? Absolutely. Part of your enterprise-wide risk assessment process should be risk assessing those vendors. And how can you um, institute appropriate due diligence over those vendors unless you know what risk they pose to the bank and what their criticality is? So it's a very much um, important process of your vendor management program and your enterprise information security program. Great. Folks, we're going just a little bit over the advertised time here, so I'm going to ask you to each give me sort of a wrap-up statement. I'm going to start with you, Stephen, since I had you go last the first time. Given what we've discussed and what you know, what do you think is going to be the big story of 2008 in terms of banking and security? 
Well, you, you've covered a lot of good topics today, and I, I just wanted to thank you know thank you for doing this survey. I think this will help a lot of uh, folks in the financial industry to be able to um, to focus on the right things. I, I think again, you know, as I started out in the beginning, knowing the customer and knowing the business, I think it is the is are the two most important things that we can do to help take a risk-based approach to information security, uh, as opposed to uh, you know just dealing with one threat at a time, uh, because clearly uh, we're outnumbered in terms of threat vectors and different types of threats. So, you know, knowing the business and knowing the customer are the best ways that we can, uh, you know, move this ball forward and help maintain the consumer confidence in the in the um, in, in the in the you know the advantages that we have in the financial institutions. Very good. Well said, Jeffrey. Same question for you. Knowing what you know. And from your perspective, what do you think is going to be the big story this year? Well, Tom, first of all, uh, I make no claim to know what the big story is going to be, um, you know. Um, but I will say there are two things on my radar screen that um, I think will be significant things this year. Um, the first one is red flags, um, simply because since the uh, final regulation came out, um, I've had a lot of institutions contact me because my name was on the fill and ask about, you know, what, are the, what do we need to know, when are the agencies going to come out with exam procedures and that sort of stuff. So there seems to be a very, very high level of interest in that. Um, and secondly, um, and this sort of goes back to authentication but not completely, um, I think the, the topic of Social Security number usage, um, you remember that there was a President's Identity Theft Task Force on um, identity theft last year, um, that report was filed, but that group still exists. And the FDIC and the other banking agencies are still working on supplemental reports, which will be submitted to the president this spring. And one of them has to do with the use of social security numbers by financial institutions, among others, to identify and authenticate and verify customers. Um, and I think that depending on what that report says and what is done with it once it's filed, um, you know, there could be some significant things that could happen from that. Great points, Jeffrey. Megan, same question for you. Given what you know and from your perspective, what's the big story? I have to, I have to agree with Jeff. It's just so hard to predict where the industry is going to go. I think everybody was kind of shocked to see um, as much enforcement action after the ITRMP was instituted. You know, multi-factor, that didn't get as much recognition as we thought it would. So who, who knows where 2008 is going to take us. But I think given what the FDIC and the interagencies have done recently, you're going to see a big trend towards vendor management. And, again, identity theft. I think a lot of institutions got slapped on the hands about DLBA, and they don't want to have that happen again. So they're trying to be a little bit more proactive about the red flag regulation. Very good. Megan, Jeffrey, Steve, I want to thank each of you for taking time with us today and for, for sharing your insights. I think you've been excellent. I, I really appreciate your help today. You're welcome, Tom. Jordan. I also want to, uh, to thank each of our attendees for taking time out of the day to, first, thanks for responding to our survey. Thanks for making time to, to listen to the overview today, for sending in your thoughtful questions. And I've got one last question for you. You see my email address on the screen. I would love to hear from you. First of all, I'd love to hear what's your reaction. You've taken the survey, you've seen what your peers have said, and you've got the responses. Now, what's your gut reaction? I would love to hear what you think about it. Next, I told you up front that we want to do a lot more research over the coming year. 
and would like to know what topics would you like us to drill down into. We've identified some good ones today in terms of customer awareness and vendor management and incident response, but what really is on your radar you'd like to hear more about? If you've got some suggestions, please take time to email me. Email me anytime. I'd love to hear from you, but specifically we'd love to hear your thoughts on this research and what you'd like us to take a look at next. With that, one final thank you. Appreciate the panelists being here. Appreciate the, the respondents. And for Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much. Have a great day.